Hey everyone, this is Frodo the Lawyer, and we actually have a very special guest today who is not uh, our normal friend of Amanda or normal <laughs> friend of, of Tori. This is Daniel Batchelder. Did I say that right? Daniel? That's, that's right, Batchelder. Bat I am friend to no one. <laughs> Batch Elder. Um, you're an elder, the elder Batch. Uh, a, whole, a whole group of old people. <laughs> yeah. So Daniel is an expert on this topic. And I know you guys might think that Amanda and I are experts, um, and we are, but, but Daniel is even more expert, if you can imagine such a person existing. Daniel, <laughs> Daniel studies Disney music, from what I understand, and, that uh, is correct. and has written words about Disney music, but now he's going to take those written words and he's going to make them go in your ears. So, <laughs> yes. well, you are a, uh, a PhD student in uh, what is what is exactly your course of study? Uh, the course is called musicology, um, okay. like the Prince album, but uh, not the Prince album. Uh, it is essentially the the academic study of music um, as an artifact of history, of culture, of society. Um, as you can guess, it's an extremely lucrative field with endless job opportunities uh, that await right. me. Yeah. Right, that's why we had to pay you such a hefty fee to get you on this podcast, because you're in hot demand, I know, exactly. I know. yes. Mm -hmm. So now that our uh, our resources have been exhausted, this better be a really good interview, because otherwise we're going to have to end the podcast. I'm sorry. Oh, well, I'm sorry, devoted listeners. I'm, I'm just leaving then. This is too much pressure. <laughs> All right, well, well, Daniel, uh, not only are you a musicology PhD student at Case Western uh, University, but you are focusing in... Disney music. So how did that come about? How does one, uh, first of all, how does one get into musicology? And then second of all, how does one get into Disney musicology? Is Did you did you seek out, you know, the, the most learned professor uh, of Disney music and you, you asked for their guidance or, or what happened? Uh, you know, something like that. Um, the first, to answer your first question, how does one get into musicology? The answer is usually you try to have a career as a musician and you mm -hmm. fail at that. And so you decide, well, I could still be in music, but without having to pass an audition. Um, that's not exactly what happened to me, but we can, we can say that's essentially what happened. Um, yes, you are a failure. We, that, we agree. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I did a, um, an undergraduate degree in music history uh, which is sort of not many universities offer that, but I went to a school that did an offer degree in that. And in terms of getting into Disney, you know, I watched several Disney movies when I was, should we say, the appropriate age mm -hmm. to be watching a Disney movie, you know. 25, right, yeah. 25, yeah. Um, but when I got to college, I had a, a very good friend who never stopped uh, being obsessed with Disney. And she was, she was also in the music department with me. And she was telling me like, look, I know you've probably seen a lot of these movies, but like now that you know things about music and have, you know, a better trained ear, it's really worth, you know, revisiting these again. And like, cause they're really great. And there's a lot of great stuff going on. Um, and she convinced me, uh, then flash forward to my senior year in college. And I, had to pick a topic for an undergrad thesis. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to, I wanted to do something that was a little outside of the box, a little, you know, hadn't been talked about very much before, you know, I didn't want to write yet another essay about, you know, Beethoven because let's be real, you know, I love Beethoven, but we, we know enough. Mr. Churchill of uh, Snow White fame is a, uh, is, is a step above and beyond Beethoven. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, Yes, I, <laughs> I I hesitate to say yes because I feel like a lot of my uh, colleagues would uh, flog me for making such a bold statement. Right. But I, I stand now, Daniel, do you do you agree that all music besides Disney music is a sham? Completely. <laughs> if if it okay, doesn't good. have that script D on it, I ain't interested. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you were saying that you you had to pick your senior thesis when you were an undergrad. That's correct. And yeah. So, um, and I eventually landed on, you know, I've been watching these 
these movies and I realized that no one had written about them, at least certainly not about the music. There's a great amount of uh, academic writing, academic criticism about Disney and, you know, his identity politics, gender politics, you know, all very important research. But no one really talked about, wait, there are characters singing in all of these films. What's up with that? Uh, so I wound up writing my undergraduate thesis on uh, the the Disney Renaissance. That's sort of uh, 1989 to 99. Um, and I especially focused on uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which has just an absolutely incredible score. And I, I can't wait until Wish Upon a Star gets to that. I'll probably take several years. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've got a while to go. Yeah. So, so you write about the Disney Renaissance, but then you finished your undergrad degree. You could have gone on to being a normal person. What, what made you continue along this path? You know, I liked the idea of being a professional nerd, mm. uh, which is really what a lot of academia is. Mm. Um, and especially a professional nerd who was focusing on an area that was really recognizable to a lot of people. So, you know, so many people ha are familiar with Disney and have it in their life. And it's a huge part of their childhood and their adulthood. Right. Um, but again, this issue of like, no one was talking about these and I wanted to be that person. Uh, so I was uh, in the folly of youth emboldened to pursue uh, that career, uh, you know, call it uh, vanity. But but here we are. Yeah, um, it's all led you to this moment. Exactly. So I started a master's degree and wanted to continue working on Disney, but realized, you know what, I would like to go back to the beginning, you know. Mm. Um, so, you know, what better place to start than the first feature film? Mm -hmm. uh, so I wrote my master's thesis on Snow White. Yes. And, um, and that's actually uh, how we discovered... Mr. Dan. Uh, in fact, in doing some of the vast research that we did for Wish Upon a Star, we uh, found Dan's work. It, it's really, the, like like he was saying, it was really the only piece of uh, maybe academic uh, Snow White that I could find, uh, the only academic source about Snow White's music in particular that we could find. There's a lot out there about the animation. There's a lot out there about uh, the making of process of the movie and the history of, you know, Walt Disney and what he was doing, but the focus on the music was not there. Yeah. So, uh, thank you for for bringing that that service to to the world by writing your your master's thesis and enlightening the world and the people. Well, thank you for being enlightened. <laughs> um, but you didn't stop there. Now you're doing your PhD and and just <laughs> brief briefly explain just what your your PhD, what your, your, I guess your current thesis or your current uh, focus is, just so we're all clear on that. So I broaden my scope to uh, the entirety of the Disney golden era. Uh, that's essentially from their first sound shorts in 1928 mm -hmm. uh, through Bambi in 1942, uh, which includes Snow White, of course. Um, and I'm looking at these films uh, as musicals. Uh, because I'm very interested in musicals as um, artifacts, as how they function mm -hmm. in American society, how they, uh, you know, the differences between Hollywood and Broadway. So my my short elevator pitch, as we call it, is uh, I'm working on Disney's golden era animated musicals, um, and I'm looking at the uh, dramatic and cultural functions of song in those films. Well, when you finish your uh, your dissertation i'm going to be really interested to know your take on uh ichabod and mr toad this is really going to be um what's going to make or break <laughs> your your uh, analysis from my perspective um I, i'm expecting you know many chapters about that that one particular um what is mm -hmm. it a set of two dumb things i don't know oh um make yeah, my music some mm -hmm. stupid thing that just needed yeah a package film right um a package uh, that got lost at sea. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> bad, bad jokes. Um, so we're going to go back to Snow White because although you've, you've, your research is beyond that, I think, well, 
I know that that's all we've talked about so far in the podcast, and I don't want to jump too far ahead uh, and confuse our, our the minds of our listeners, uh, the very delicate minds they have. <laughs> so briefly, just explain what your thesis was in that paper, uh, and then we can kind of go through the songs, and uh, and you can let us know uh, what these songs meant to the people that were listening to it at that time. Yeah, um, well, I think to begin with, because I was writing about Snow White, not the first feature-length animated film ever made. Uh, some people sort of misattributed to that, but it really was the first in a lot of ways. It was the first, you know, feature-length animated film with color. The first with sound. Um, was it the first in America as well? Yes. Um, and so nothing else matters. I, I'm I'm sorry. Well, and honestly, as far as I know, Disney didn't know about the uh, the predecessors. There was uh, the earliest one was from Argentina, but it was destroyed in a fire. Mm. Uh, There's a famous okay. one from Germany from the 20s, but as far like Disney probably didn't ever have access to that, possibly even within his lifetime. Um, and also, you know, importantly for my purposes, it's the first ever uh, feature length animated musical. Okay. Um, so I, I wanted to see like, okay, how did the studio approach the challenge of making an animated musical uh, when one had never really existed before? I, sh I should say a feature-length animated musical because, of course, there had been plenty of uh, highly musical cartoon shorts uh, from Disney and from other studios. So I started looking at, okay, what had come before this and what was happening at the same time. Because, you know, if you think about cartoons from the 20s and 30s, it's just, for by and large, it's slapstick uh, for seven minutes. Um, you know, Disney had sort of started moving away from that model. Um, you know, they had made these huge, important technological advancements. You know, they introduced uh, continuous soundtrack, they introduced color, you know, you had mentioned the multiplane camera, mm. um, but other studios, other cartoon studios, like the Fleischer Studios, MGM, Warner Brothers, um, started to develop similar technology. So Disney couldn't stand out just from a technological standpoint. Right. Um, so one of the ways they sort of made their own identity to stand apart from these competing studios uh, was focused on, first of all, uh, drama uh, characters would be the center of the stories. Uh, this is why we get, you know, Mickey and Minnie and Donald and Goofy. Um, and also, you know, they wouldn't, as in other cartoons, they wouldn't do things like, you know, take their head off yeah. and stretch their arm across the room. All of this, right. these things that are possible in animation, but Disney's actually reining those in for the sake of a good story and characters that you like and, and right. are supposed to identify with. Right. Disney would stick to uh, just allowing humans and forest animals to communicate with English uh, in ancient uh, ancient Germany lands. Um, but but stretch, exactly. stretching their arms, no. That was a no-go. Oh, yeah. No. It, I mean, you could talk to animals, but you couldn't like become an animal right. you couldn't like transform right. um uh but the other way that they uh sort of differentiated themselves from other studios was uh for lack of a better term focusing on artistic integrity um having the most beautiful elegant animation and we see this especially in the silly symphonies um you know there are silly symphonies that you know, sorry, but we've mentioned the silly symphonies before on this podcast. Yeah. But can, can you just give a, a, a quick explanation of what what they were? Yeah, well, so Disney had two series of shorts, and by shorts I mean you know about seven minute cartoons, and these would be shown uh, in movie theaters before the feature started. This is what a cartoon was. Right. Um, and the two series, one was the character series, the Mickeys, and this is where you had Mickey and Minnie and then later Donald, Goofy, Pluto, uh, you know, recurring characters. And they usually be in, you know, comedic situations like, oh, they're trying to put out a fire, but of course everything goes wrong. Um, uh, you can't see it, but I was doing sort of silly arm gestures. Um, 
And the other sort of companion series that started just a year after in 1929 uh, was The Silly Symphonies. Um, And once Disney had, uh, with Steamboat Willie in 28, um, had found a reliable way of synchronizing music and animation, they developed this series to really exploit that. Um, You don't have the recurring characters. There's usually little to no plot. There's a lot that's really just like there's nice music and like, you know, wood nymphs frolicking, but they really start pushing the boundaries of how much can we call cartooning an art form rather than just an entertainment form. Um, so by the time of Snow White, I think he announces his intention to create a feature length film in 1934. Um, he already, Disney already had a reputation for this sort of quality film. Now, that being said, critics thought it would still be impossible. Like, yes, he's good at doing this and he's, you know, at the top of his field, but no one's going to want to watch, um, a 90 minute cartoon. From your perspective as a learned man, what sort of <laughs> things did Disney rely upon in, in making this a reality? Yeah, well, so I guess you could say that there is a large undercurrent in this project of how do we make this film classy? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not that every single thing has to be really highbrow or really artistic. Um, however, there are a lot of similarities musically uh, with the music that Snow White and the Prince sing uh, with the genre of operetta. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, um, I've, I've heard of operettas, um, and I know that they're you know, lighter operas, or lighter mm-hmm. than opera, but um, ex- what exactly is an operetta, and, and how how is Snow White and her prince, how are they... Uh, how are they representing that sort of genre? Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, calling opera operetta a light opera is, is an apt description. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, you know, this genre started on stages in uh, the 19th century. It started in France and sort of quickly spread across Europe. Uh, you get people like uh, Offenbach, uh, Johann Strauss in Austria-Hungary, um, and then I think most familiar to us are Gilbert and Sullivan um, in England. And in the 19th century, these were um, sort of a more accessible, more uh, sort of light and fluffy alternative to opera. So, like, you're saying that operetta is kind of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe of its of its day? Um with with what regards uh with with every <laughs> regard so the operetta you know makes its way to america in the early 20th century and in america it's you know still seen like in europe as a lighter version of opera but it has this sort of patina of or like a, a sheen of refinement because it's from europe all right and it's it's elegant and it's classy and especially uh, the Viennese operettas like the Strauss and Lehar operettas uh, have tons and tons and tons of waltzes in them, um, which in the 19th century was a popular dance craze. But by the 20th century, it's sort of a, oh, remember back in the time when everyone was waltzing and everything was great. Make, uh, make America waltz again. So to speak. It's terrible. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned that the operetta um, and, and why it was important. Um, I guess then, uh, how did that translate to, especially the first few songs of Snow White, um, where do we see those elements pop up in the movie? The operetta elements that are most apparent are uh, in the voices of Snow White and the Prince you know, which we've talked about and they have this, uh, you know, the legitimate singing where it's, uh, uh, very well supported through the diaphragm. They're not, um, sort of making 
uh, use of the break between head voice and chest voice. I don't want to get technical. Um, also, the continuous, continuous vibrato um, in their singing. Um, but also, especially with Snow White, she has these uh, incredibly virtuosic um, cadenzas. Uh, we would call that style of singing coloratura, where it's very high and very fast um, and just a lot of notes uh, sung very cleanly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, I think in a smile and a song, she goes up to a high F sharp, and that's above the Queen of the Night's high note. So that's pretty impressive. I think more generally we see operetta in uh, the kinds of melodies they get to sing, you know, I'm wishing has these large leaping intervals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you talked about the, was it, you know, C to A. Um, here, actually, I have the score and I can look. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is it, uh, is the Snow White's beating uh, the Prince's uh, three games to two in the score? Oh, uh, what's that? It was a, a sports joke. I would think the oh, okay. score of a game. Never mind. Yes. Well, yeah, and I mean, the prince has almost nothing to do in this movie except to, like, be an object for Snow White to sort of uh, project her affections on. And he's extremely boring. Um, but also... Some would, uh, some would our- say that that's how men should be, though. Um. Yes. <laughs> boring and saving you those are (laughs) everyone wants a man that's boring and saves you (laughs) i can subscribe to that i can i can get behind that um i don't know where we were Uh, you were talking about Uh, the score (laughs) mm -hmm. yeah oh um yeah so you know snow white has these sweeping melodies uh the orchestrations she gets are very lush it's very string heavy Um, You already talked about the prince having rubato, and that's Mm. another big sign. Um, Also, I think most tellingly is that Snow White gets a waltz. Um, Someday Someday My Prince Will Come is a waltz, yeah. Uh, When she sings it, it's a very slow waltz. Mm. I don't know that you could really waltz to it. Mm. Uh, Of course, when she sings it, tons of rubato. Yes. Um... Uh, but also it appears, I think, in the overture and then at the very end as a, a quicker, more under tempo of waltz. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the and also I think most generally like operettas tended to be about young lovers in faraway kingdoms. And it was a romantic light-hearted story and you know the the princess or the the ingenue would be taken away and the the prince would have to rescue her um so in a lot of ways snow white and the prince are living in an operetta world yeah so what is their world though i i know i'm right you know we we debated on the show about uh, amanda and i about where where are they in the netherlands they have clogs uh is there any way to decipher from the musical? Certainly not. Uh, the the place is like Europe-ish. It's I, I mean it's you know generic old world Europe. Um, if you wanted to be specific, it's probably like mm. the Bavarian you know Low Country region. Um, but you know uh, be, when he was preparing. Um, uh, Snow White, Disney took a long uh, vacation in Europe and he bought tons and tons and tons of picture books and he had his artists sort of reproduce a lot of that style uh, in Snow White. So, for example, the the castle, uh, the famous castle in the opening multiplane shot, mm. that's based on a castle in Spain. Okay. But they chose it not because, oh, it looks so Spanish, but because, oh, it looks like old world Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, this is sort of an American airsats reproduction of, like, back in the olden days. Right. You know, it's a fairy tale. This this is also where the Grimm's fairy tales take place, just right. back in the day mm-hmm. in Europe somewhere. A long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, in a... Europe, far, far away. Uh, yeah. Before we, we talk about maybe what other influences there are in some of the Snow White songs, um, 
you you mentioned her voice being uh, specifically something that is operetta influenced. Um, we haven't really been the biggest fan of Snow White's voice so far in the podcast, but I, <laughs> maybe can you put some sort of uh, give us some some something some kind of context that will maybe make us forgive uh, Adriana Casalotti for sounding so entirely putrid. <laughs> um, I will be the first to go on record to say that uh, by today's standards, her voice is hard to listen to. Mm. Um, it, it is very high. Uh, the, the kind of vibrato she uses is much faster and more fluttery than, than we're used to listening to. Um, and also there's, you know, part of it has to do with like the more primitive recording technology. It just didn't, um, capture the sort of nuance of voice as well that's why it might sound kind of piercing uh when she gets into her higher register um unlike the great audio quality of this podcast which captures nuance perfectly of course but i would say in her defense um this is exactly what disney wanted from her so Adriana Casalotti was the daughter of a vocal coach who was living in L.A. at the time. And Disney, the story goes, there's a great interview with her from like the 80s or 90s. Um, Disney called this vocal coach to say, like, look, we're doing this film. We want someone who can sing in this way because we oh, want wow. there to be these sort of operetta elements. We want her to have lots of high notes and the very light coloratura. And the story goes that Adriana, who was 18 at the time, mm. was listening on another line, uh, listening in on the conversation. Right. And, you know, she burst in saying, hey, I can do it. I can do it. And she just started doing these like high trails to demonstrate, you know, what kind of voice she had. So, yeah, it was her very much doing exactly the kind of sound Disney wanted from her mm. um, because he was in a sense, trying to make an operetta. Now, now is, is her tone of voice supposed to invoke, like you were saying, a young lover? Is she supposed to, um, is youth the main uh, goal, or did all women, adult and young, sound the same in operettas? No, um, the, the ingenue romantic female lead mm -hmm. tended to be, and this, this extends back to opera as well. Uh, you know, pretty much any Mozart opera, for example, this is the case. Uh, the, the lead is a soprano. So we have um, Mozart to blame for all this. Damn it. Uh, it, it goes way beyond Mozart, but like, no, if I, you want I'm to, blaming you know, Mozart. Okay. I mean, I'm going to watch the movie Amadeus and I'm just going to boo the whole time the next, like tonight. That's what it is. <laughs> Or you can cheer for Salieri. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Um, but yeah, so it's it's just we, uh, Disney trying to make a movie that fit in this tradition of operetta, light opera with the ingenue soprano um, and the tenor romantic male lead. Um, you know, her showing off her high range, um, I'd say is sort of an old, like lasting way of demonstrating innocence. Mm -hmm. uh, Interesting. You know, she's young, she's pure, you know, for, it's very important for us to know that she's a virgin and that's why Whoa. when we first see her, Whoa. she's surrounded white Whoa. everywhere. Hold up. Uh, yes. All right. If you have children out there, <laughs> I apologize for, for, uh, the, this elder Dan's, Elder ba Elder Batch is is uh, invoking uh, the virginity, but um, well, why why would children listen to a podcast about Disney music? I don't know. I, I just I don't understand. <laughs> um, I do want to quickly add about operetta. Um, the reason Disney is turning towards this genre uh, because if we remember this project of how do we show that animation can be classy. Mm. Um, in the 30s, there had just recently been this um, spate of uh, operetta adaptations for Hollywood films. Okay. Um, a lot of them starred uh, Jeanette McDonald. Um, so in a lot of ways, they're basically saying, like, look, we can do what Jeanette McDonald does. Um, and it's just, you know, it's this class thing mm -hmm. again, how to make it sort of highbrow. Right. 
um, I, I guess we can skip ahead um, briefly from the making of the movie, but did that ultimately pay off? I know that Snow White ultimately got good reviews, but uh, did people particularly comment on, you know, wow, Disney really captured this, uh, like you're saying, this high quality, this highbrow type of, of music, or was it not seen that way when it ultimately came out? It was. It was very much like, I can't believe they did it. It's so beautiful. It's so great. It's got something for everyone. Um, when people, when contemporary reviewers talk about the music, if they talk about it at mm. all, they say, there are some nice songs in right. it. One reviewer says, like, they recognize that, oh, Snow White is the typical operetta um, heroine, and the prince has the classic... Um, you know, tenor ballad in a balcony scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's about all they specifically say right. about that. But you would say that at the time, that was something that was more appreciated, maybe, or or, or was was a more distinct, perhaps, um, as a sign of the achievement that Disney had. Yes, it was definitely recognizable that they were going for a specific genre. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then moving beyond uh, specifically the operetta, what other influences do you see on the music of Snow White? Yeah, so while the prince and Snow White and the queen, um, if you take out all the other characters, their story is pretty serious. It's you know a romantic story with this sort of villainous uh, character trying to get in their way. Um, but then when you put in the dwarves, they have really uh, the opposite effect. Mm, right. Um, so while Snow White is, uh, we would say, highbrow and elegant and refined, um, the dwarves act as a sort of counterbalance uh, to that. Uh, they have Their songs are very folksy. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, we talked about uh, I'm wishing has these large leaps that da dee dee dee. Um, the dwarf songs never have that big of a leap right. in any of their, you know, I think they might have a third, right. uh, maybe a fourth, um, but it's mostly scales. Um, uh, sort of we, we sort of talked about, but we almost skipped over with a smile on the song. When, when I just talked yeah. about that song with my co-host, we noted that, Although Snow White had her similar maybe operatic vocal quality, there was the the um, the second time through in the mm-hmm. song when she's not singing, we called it like the jazzy trumpet part. Um, it, it was, I guess, is that sort of the beginning of the influence uh, of you know more folksy or or current type of music? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, what, well, what if you if that? you read. Uh, Snow White as being from this sort of operetta world and the dwarves as being from this sort of folksy, um, you know, more simplistic down to earth world. Um, That exact moment you were talking about where she has her song and then the dwarves or the rather the animals start leading her towards the dwarves cottage. I think it's telling that the orchestration or, or rather the orchestra repeats the song she was just singing like an operetta character, but mm. puts it in a sort of jazzy mm. swing outfit. Um, so it's like, it's almost, you could say it represents uh, Snow White going from one world to the next. So when we picked up on that, we were we were even wiser than we thought. We, we unlocked the key to Snow White in that moment. Oh, certainly. Yeah, I mean, it's, that, mo- that moment sounds like... Um, Paul Whiteman or George Gershwin with the, you know, the muted trumpets and they swing it a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad that we, we we pointed that out in the first, first go through, uh, slap on the the back to, uh, myself and uh, my, and Amanda and Tori. Um, (laughs) so the first few songs, when you have Snow White and the Prince, those are clearly influenced by the operetta. What specific influences are there for the dwarf songs that do make them sound uh, a little more folksy, as you said? Yeah, well, the dwarves are a little harder to pinpoint specifically to, like, a single, um, you know, theatrical or uh, musical Mm. uh, tradition. Um, But they really, especially in their dialogue and their actions, 
they really read like uh, vaudeville comedy troupe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have the these characters with sort of distinct and very clearly defined personality traits. Um, you know, Sneezy sneezes a lot. Yeah. And, you know, Doc has these spoonerisms. Um, and Dopey is a mime. Oh. I thought that he I thought he was just a dope. Well he's a he is a dope and they are representing his dopiness by not allowing him to speak. Because could because could you imagine what he would say? I'm sure it would be quite quite dopey. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So I guess I never thought about that before. But that um, they're all sort of assuming these roles that we you may have seen on the stage if you were to go uh, to a, a vaudeville act. Is that how you'd refer yeah, to well, it? Uh, you would say a, a vaudeville show, but mm-hmm. uh, vaudeville was a variety theater, so it wasn't right. uh, you know one night where you see one story with one plot. It was a ton of different acts and really with mm-hmm. a lot of, as the name implies variety. So you'd have mm-hmm. comedy routines and you'd have uh, popular songs and you'd have someone sing an opera aria and there'd be mm-hmm. dancers and there'd be juggling and there would be, it was just really a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, for example, Billy Gilbert was a famous vaudeville comedian who was known for a routine where he would have okay. these over the top sneezes and so not only was he cast as Sneezy, they actually wrote the role of Sneezy around letting him show off that skill. Um, mm. And so a lot of their songs really read like vaudeville comedy routines. Uh, the Washing Song is one of those where right. it's not really a song. It's like there's music and they're sort of speaking in rhythm and with rhymes. But mm. it's mostly about like the series of funny gags that are happening, and it's right. gags built around these personalities. So, I guess then, Snow White, it has vaudeville operetta influences. It seems like two mm-hmm. different worlds. Um, I guess, why did Disney want to do that? I mean, I know you're not Walt himself, but you're you're as close as we got. So, uh, just get, let me know, how did this end up working? What, what made it all happen? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I I can't say for sure because I wasn't there. Um, But I think a lot of it has to do with this question that sort of got me started on this whole project, which is, you know, this is the this film is the first of its kind. Mm -hmm. Um, What did it have to prove and what did it set out to do? Mm -hmm. So I think if we have the sort of um, operetta on one hand, and we can really see it as art and not just like a silly cartoon. Right. At the same time, however, we're not going to forget that we had our roots in the silly cartoons. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have the dwarves sort of, at least musically, uh, counterbalancing that. Um, So there are some uh, just really fun, frivolous moments uh, that sort of counterbalance um the more serious intense moments Mm -hmm. um you know snow white was banned in europe because it was too frightening for children it was it was heavily censored and it was banned entirely in britain for a while um for the scenes with the witch uh you know Mm -hmm. where she transforms um and also when snow white once runs through the forest uh we're seen as just too dark and too scary um so i think having the the dwarves and their comedy and their vaudeville um, made it just a more fun and more sort of light movie in a tonal way. Mm-hmm. And at times, these sort of two worlds clash. My, I think my favorite song in the movie is the Silly Song, um, mm-hmm. in part because it's so on the nose with, we don't want you to take this song seriously. The, I mean, mm-hmm. the lyrics are literally, the tune is dumb, the words don't mean a thing. But then in the middle of that, you know, this is the dwarf sort of singing around and dancing. Um, Snow White lets rip with this operatic high note that just absolutely doesn't belong there um it reminds me of when i was in uh, music school and i would have a karaoke party and invite 
you know, a voice major yeah. to the party and uh, just realize it was a terrible mistake. Right. They, they, they sang, <laughs> they sang wannabe by the, the Spice Girls a little too well. It was, yeah, just a little too much. Um, so there's that clash, but I think overall it's less of a dichotomy and more of uh, a marriage. So it, it could appeal to a wide range of audiences, which is... Yeah, essentially appeal to everyone. Yeah. Yeah, which is probably why it did so well and why we're here 80 years later, uh, you know, sitting in our apartments uh, talking to each other about it. So I would I completely uh, agree with that. Yeah, it's you know, if it was just sort of a frivolous comedy, it would be like, oh, this is an interesting sort of side note in the history of Hollywood. Mm. Um but the fact that it was so um, reached for so much and accomplished so much mm. um, really makes it such an important movie. Okay. Well, thank you for for giving uh, for you know giving us your insight on on what Snow Might meant and what influence it has, it had. Um, there's a couple other things I do want to ask you before I let you go. Um, one of them sure. is uh, Amanda and I talked a little bit previously about uh perhaps it was the the dwarves that invented yodeling and they may have done so in um you know many millennia ago and and kept it as their as their secret um i know you mentioned vaudeville and i know you mentioned operetta uh where does yodeling come in is yodeling an aspect of of one of one of those two genres well let me first say that as a scholar and expert i have found no evidence to disprove your theory okay that the dwarves invented yodeling. All right. Um, but yeah, yodeling uh, is this interesting um, link between the two worlds, mm-hmm. between the sort of old world and new world comedy. Um, you mentioned uh, in the in the previous episode that you know yodeling had this long, long, long history in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually was a semi-practical tradition because uh, herders would yodel on the mountains, like in the Alps, and you could hear it from really far away. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, just sort of became part of this um, European, Bavarian, Swiss culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it became popular um, in the 19th century as uh, part of variety shows, which we know then became vaudeville. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was probably brought to America by German immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the 20th century in America, yodeling was both seen as this sort of inherited tradition from the old world, but also as this like popular craze. Um, so if you think about yodeling in country music, mm-hmm. that started in the 20s. So people like Jimmy Rogers would yodel. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the dwarves yodel, it's this really interesting link that connects them both with the old world, but also with more contemporary um, sort of popular traditions. Cool. So um, yeah, that's, that's interesting that yodeling has, has such an important, uh, important role in, in bringing us all together in this movie. Yeah. Um, so, um, thank you for answering answering uh, my question about the yodels. I'll bring that back to Amanda <laughs> and make sure she knows that we were we were right on the ball in in noticing that as an important uh, important part of this movie. Um, I I do want to also I want to get your sense as a trained musicologist and a PhD student, uh, your expert opinion uh, personally <laughs> on which songs of Snow White you like. And which songs you don't. So I don't. I know you've listened to some of the podcasts. At the end of each episode, we kind of run through each of our opinions about the song, giving it a grade or a rank. Um, we've covered now uh, six of the songs. Uh, so I, I wanted to just rapid fire ask you, I'll name a song, you give me your few sentence opinion on it, um, and what you think. So I'll start off with with I'm wishing. I, I, what is your what is your sense of that? Um, how do you li- do you like it? And you can do this based off whether it's musically valid or just you love it, uh, this is your show. So go ahead. I'm wishing. Oh, geez. You know, it's, it's hard to separate like my personal opinions from like the way I see these songs as like my job. (laughs) 
as, as part of what I do. Um, but I'll do my best. Yeah, I, I'm Wishing is one of my favorites. I really like uh, it. I think it's got a beautiful melody and the um, Snow White sort of vocal fireworks, I think, are really impressive. Um, also, it's for me as a Disney scholar, it's one of my favorites because there's this moment where, you know, she's singing with her echo. Right. Um, I, I know you've located that on the mysterious water people. Yes. Um, but I, I see, I see that as Disney saying like, look, we're doing this operetta thing, but don't forget it's still animated. So we're going to do things that are only possible in a cartoon. Mm-hmm. So there's that moment at the end where she sings in harmony with herself, right. which could have never been done anywhere else. But that, that right. part kind of gives me chills. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really cool part. Um, yeah, I, th- I think Amanda is, is the hater of that song. I, I've always been the proponent of, of "I'm Wishing," mm. so, so we're we're on we're lockstep with that. Then um, I guess let's let's move on to one song, which you could view as the same song. We decided to split it up on our podcast um, because there's two different characters and there's different melodies, but uh, it comes right after "I'm Wishing." What are your What are your thoughts on that one? Um, snooze fest. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, you know, it's the only thing the prince gets to do. It's yeah. the only insight into his character that and, we get. Yeah. And his character is like generic tenor man. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that that scene is visually beautiful. Mm-hmm. In that scene, they specifically reference a 1936 film version of Romeo and Juliet with right. the balcony scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but musically, yeah. yeah. No, thanks. Um. And then I guess let's, uh, what was the next one? I don't even Oh, with a smile and a song. Um, yes, that's, that's a little bit, that's an interesting one because I think that that's the one song that, uh, Amanda and I were maybe the least familiar with when we got to it in the podcast. Um, we just really couldn't remember it at all. Um, but as someone who's, I'm sure listened to it many times studying it, what is your take on it? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, you you did get at this in your episode. It, this that song is a depression era song. Like you can tell that was written during the depression because it's all about cheer up, everything's going to be okay. Mm. Like the the dark times don't last too long. Um, that was it's very much Disney trying to sell that song. Oh, we didn't even mention that Snow White was the very first film in history to be released with an original soundtrack. Oh, really? Um, Yes. Before this, um, a film would be released sort of in conjunction with a record that was other artists maybe doing covers of the songs. Mm. But Snow White was the first that had the exact soundtrack that's used in the film. Okay. So all of these songs, even though we have this like highbrow, lowbrow, like something for everyone, they're all intended as commodities for people to buy Mm. uh, either on record or at that time they would buy it as uh, sheet music. Okay. Um, So I... I see with a smile and a song being very much of its time. Um, and then uh, after that, we had whistle while you work, which I mean, as we mentioned, it's a song that, I mean, I'm sure that you knew it well before you started studying this and now you know it too well. Um, <laughs> what are your, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah. Um, that song is the most like a song from a Fred Astaire mm-hmm. musical, I would say in that, he sings, uh, he'll sing a verse of the song all the way through, and then there will be the melody continues in the orchestra, sort of like a theme in variations, mm-hmm. while he dances to right. it. Um, and in Whistle While You Work, instead of dancing, you have this like series of gags of the animals cleaning the house. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, um, and then the last song that we've covered so far, oh no, sorry, we've covered two more. Uh, the next song we covered so far is Hi Ho. Uh, so again, that's another one that is, is very well known. What is your, what are your thoughts on, uh, what is your opinion on hi-ho? Yeah. Um, I like that. That's the way the movie chose to introduce the dwarfs like mm-hmm. in song. Right. And they actually, in this movie, they introduce all of the characters in song, except the queen who's not allowed to sing. Right. Um, and I, yeah, I think in, you know, hi-ho is, the most sort of musically limited or should I say melodically limited. Mm. Um, It's such a small range that the melody covers and it's extremely repetitive. Mm. You know, half of half of each verse doesn't even have words. It's just whistling. Um, 
But I think it's a, a cool way to introduce the dwarves as, you know, folksy workers. Mm. Um, and it's introducing them in a work song, which, if you remember, it comes immediately after with um, Whistle While You Work, right, right. which is also a work song, but it's sort of the elegant, like, oh, let me tell you how to be a good worker, mm-hmm. whereas that's immediately followed with, like, we are workers, we yes. are sort of just we're doing the job right um in the process of of, this is the beginning of a long 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 tradition of work songs in disney okay uh, well we'll have to keep an eye out for that as we as we move forward yeah um and then the last song that we just covered is the washing song which you mentioned is is not really a song but um, it could still be your favorite so so what are your thoughts on it it's not my favorite, but it is my least favorite. Oh, okay. Um, it's, it's just the least, to me, the least interesting to mm. listen to. Right. Like, yeah, great, it's a comedy routine. It, it just relies so much on the visuals. Right. Um, and I personally think that that sequence is unnecessary. Like, we already know the dwarves' personalities. Um, we didn't know quite sort of- how much they feared, like, bathwater. We didn't know uh, exactly, <laughs> uh, you know, once you know a man's greatest fear, then you then you truly can see into his soul. That, a wise man once that, said that. Yeah, I mean, and I, I suppose uh, if Snow White really knew how much they feared water, she could have uh, called her water demons oh, yes. uh, to attack them if, oh. if they misbehaved. Look, look at you, referencing uh, prior episodes. Um, so those are all the songs we covered so far. Um, we do have a couple more left in Snow White, and, and maybe uh, we'll have you back to talk about them. Uh, uh, later, but um, well, thank you for giving your your opinions on all the songs. I'll have to you know, remember how much you hated one song, and I'll have to make sure Amanda <laughs> hears that. Um, and then maybe I'll like disguise it in some way, like I'll I'll you know cut out that clip, and then I'll like say like, oh like here's some really interesting information we need for the next podcast, and then it'll just be like you saying like one song is boring, and I'll be like yes. <laughs> um, but. Thank you so much for all of your insight, and I want to give you a last chance to, uh, if there's anything else you want us to know about uh, Snow White so far, uh, now is your your last chance to do that, Um, so give it to me. Well, uh, thank you for putting up with my nerdiness and Mm. validating my my decision to... Your entire um, existence. (laughs) Essentially, yeah. Um, Let's see, anything else about Snow White? Um... Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting to note that um, The Wizard of Oz, which you've talked about a few times, was mm. actually made by MGM as a specific response to the success of Snow White. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that we were talking about the parallels specifically because just how many how many movies from the late 1930s are people of our era familiar with, and it's these are two of the few. Um, but yeah. uh, it's interesting to know that they actually were, you know, in, there was some thought of Snow White when they were making uh, it's one or <laughs> the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, well, and but it's I mean it really is one of the oldest movies that's still really firmly in the mm-hmm. public conscience. Right. Yeah, I, I mean I always uh, really when I think about an old movie that I love, I think of Birth of a Nation. You know. A fine film but oh um, <laughs> i mean with with just excellent uh uh messages for today's right. youth um mm-hmm. but i i guess that after that that one the, yeah then snow white comes to mind mm-hmm. but joking aside thank you very much for appearing on the podcast and, and you know giving us some of your insight uh and i hope that we can take advantage of you again in the future and, and maybe have you back to talk about other disney movies um and have maybe have next time amanda will will join us and we can uh we can both uh go at you so to speak um, it would be my honor to be taken advantage of advantage of yes. um <laughs> but yeah this has been really great i hope that our listeners appreciate it and we will see you all next time on wish upon a star so thanks again thank you 